going on, everybody? This is Eric Elliott. Welcome back with another episode of the Refocus Nutrition Podcast. Uh, I am officially back from vacation and officially done with what could be the craziest six weeks of my life, uh, maybe the craziest two months. It's been a, a really wild year that I did not see coming, um, and I'm happy to be back to what I would call some sort of normalcy uh, with working out with working, with coaching, all of these things, and I'm happy to be back. Uh, This week, guys, we have on a really special guest. We have on James Fitzgerald. James um, was someone I was looking to get having on the podcast at some point in in the future. Um, He was someone that if you would have told me back in December when I started this that he would be on, I would have kind of been surprised. Um, But it's kind of all the connections you make within – uh, the industry, and we have some really exciting guests coming on in the future as well. Um, so, James, if you didn't know, is someone who in the CrossFit industry who has made a lot of noise uh, since CrossFit first came out. He first came on the scene as the winner of the 2007 um, inaugural uh, first ever CrossFit Games. Uh, he won it on the ranch, um, defeating the mighty Chris Spieler. Um, and then James went on to build a brand for himself and uh, a education platform that he now calls OPEX. Uh, he used to be here in Calgary um, before going down to Scottsdale, I, I believe in Scottsdale in, in Arizona. Um, and he talks about that on the podcast. He talks about why he made the move south. And we also dig into competition and when it's right to compete, how, how often people should be competing and what the basic level of fitness would be if you're looking to get into competition within the functional fitness realm. This is a great podcast, guys. I look forward to having James on in the future. He's someone that goes pretty deep philosophically and mentally uh, within training and why people do the way the things that they're doing. Um, so please, guys, give him a follow consume his content it's a lot of the stuff that opex is delivering is is some pretty interesting stuff i look forward to to potentially working with them in the future guys so without further ado please enjoy this episode with james Fitzgerald. welcome back to the refocus nutrition episode guys with james Fitzgerald. uh james Fitzgerald is known for a lot of things within the fitness industry especially within the uh, functional fitness industry or crossfit or whatever you want to call it um james is mostly known or i don't even want to say mostly known but is known for his winning of the 2000 cross 2007 crossfit games um back when it was held on the ranch and then actually built himself up i believe here in calgary alberta and then started to built his own system and now owns and founded OPEX uh, down in the sunnier part of the world in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on, James. Um, To start off with, yeah, why don't you tell me about growing up here and north of the border and how you made your way down to Arizona? Yeah, I'm actually from Newfoundland, um, born and raised in Wabush, Labrador, a really small community up in northern Labrador, and uh, went to university in St. John's at Memorial University, Newfoundland. Seahawks, go Seahawks. Um, and then after I finished there uh, through uh, physical education with a science um, uh, interest uh, through biology and did some honors research um, on uh, muscle fatigue, um, realized that uh, if I wanted to get into coaching, I'm probably going to have to go west, go west, young man. 
where more people were active and the conversation was um, a little bit more of interest, I would say, in Western Canada. And at the time, if people know, back in the late 90s, uh, Calgary was uh, booming. Um, the west, Western part of Canada in general was, was growing really quickly. So I was part of that invasion um, and went out there and uh, just started you know, training with everyone, with every opportunity that I had in place uh, and uh, built my, um, my personal brand as well as the brand around the business up to a point where um, I you know, had success in multiple different ways, I guess you could say. Um, and then, um, moved to Arizona in 2011 and been here for eight years, um, and been loving it. So one of the things you talk about is you've been in the fitness industry for nearly decades. Um, what did it look like when you first started training people outside of uh, when you first got out of movement then? Because like, I don't know for sure, but I don't know if CrossFit actually had been formally invented. I mean, there, I'm sure there were message boards um, probably popping up around that, that time. But what did that look like for training for yourself as well as training clients who you're working with at the time? Yeah, I think the concept of CrossFit was probably around for, during that period of time. But I started coaching people uh, in 94. Um, and that was at the Strength and Conditioning Center Memorial University. Um, so that's 25 years that I've kind of done it, done it. At the time, um, I hope it would make sense. I didn't know how coaching was perceived then. It was just, I was like, you know, 20 something years of age, like, oh, this is just what you do. You know, this is, this is coaching. Um, I had no idea what it would look like over the next number of years. So at the time, though, now I can only speak about it, if that makes sense now, because I'm looking back. Um, the coach at that period of time had, you know, was viewed differently. You know, um, I would say it wasn't, um, it, there wasn't as many per human. Um, the concept of fitness coaching still had this value associated with it. Like we were the purveyors of health and fitness knowledge and we could kind of help you go your way. Um, there was more and more growth to the strength and conditioning coach, personal trainer, um, and we all had our spot, we all had our, you know, work to do. And it was, it was well accepted at that time that, um, the value of a coach was quite high. So that's why I would say what it looked like, you know, back in the late nineties, um, as this concept of coaching was, uh, just coming to light. Yeah, it's interesting. I always find it, I always find it fascinating to talk to people, uh, like yourself who've been in the industry. Like you mentioned the year 94, that's the year I was born. So like you've been coaching as long as I've been alive. Right. So that's, that's super awesome to see something, someone who's, you know, been in it that long. You talk a little bit about coaching. I'm interested to see, you know, over those 25 years, you know, you said coaching had a good emphasis, um, a good deal of importance at that period of time. How has that changed over time has it eroded has it has it come back up because now you're leading coaches yourself and creating more education around that so how has that changed yeah well that's been mainly what we do today is to fight that resistance of that change right of the changes that have been happening so that does answer the first part of your question that yeah the value of the coach has dropped um and the reason for that is there's not a, there's not a, um, I guess there's no more moral judgment to that. It just is what it is. Right. So, um, that's where we sit right now is just basically trying to fix all those errors. There's a couple of things that happened that were kind of like the tipping points in that. 
Um, you know, in the early 2000s, this concept of high intensity fitness came on board. And uh, with that in mind, um, I think that everyone knew that that could be sold to the market and money could be made. And so everyone got behind it in terms of academic institutions and training regimes. And so that was really pushed hard. Um, the entire fitness market, you know, uh, marketed that really hard. Um, and then there were certain groups that said, fitness is free for all. Everyone should do it. This is how we're going to propagate it and move it forward. And which then everyone was like, oh, geez, I can be a fitness coach after a weekend of doing this thing. And, you know, I can open up this gym and be a fitness coach. And so these people who were, you know, I'll just give you the opposite example of it, you know, had five years in university, um, you know, sweat equity through personal training at a global gym for years, you know, trying to develop a clientele, you know, now they had like five years of experience in coaching, five years of education. And then they were, you know, then they would coach their client on Saturday, Lisa, right? And Lisa would show up and be like, hey, James, um, I just did this course last weekend. And now I've opened up my gym. And now I'm a coach. And, and the, the coach who was like 10 years in with all this practice making 20 bucks an hour net is like, what? You know, how, what, just a second now, you know? And they're like, oh, yeah, you just do these movements. And it's just high intensity. Have you heard of it? It's called whatever. You know, um, and so that, that's what happened back then. That was the big, you know, shift. Um, and uh, we've been fighting that fight ever since to try to create some unity to what the value is for a coach and how they can help people. Along with all yeah. that, trying to clear up all that market bullshit that you're going to become as fit as shit in two weeks. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Like there's the barrier for entry for getting in as a, as a quote unquote, and I'm using the air quotes, coach is not very high. Um, yep. especially like in, 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 within these circles, whether it's CrossFit, whether it's CanFit Pro, all of these, all of these people or all these organizations have a war within themselves talking about like, Oh, it's so easy to get this one. It's so easy to get this one. And, and, and we're just, we're just picking fights with each other and actually and instead of discussing what the real method is for education uh, around coaching. I think that's something I want to dig into a little bit further. Yeah. One of the things that you that I kind of mentioned off the hop is you you won the 2007 CrossFit game. So within yourself, um, how did you first find CrossFit? And how did you do you remember where you I guess first got into that training, or was it something that you kind of always been doing all along, and then you just you found a competition and signed up? Oh yeah, uh, first you mentioned that I was the 2007 games. I didn't make mention of that. Uh, second, <laughs> yes, I did have a. I was doing like various different kinds of fitness. So, I, so if it's not obvious, when I, when I saw CrossFit, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I dig this shit. I love well-rounded fitness as a concept. Um, I had a friend, uh, Jason Lomond, who was fighting at the time and we were just talking and, and consulting with one another on the fighting game and practice around training and just all different kinds of concepts around that. Um, it was, he was in, I think he was in Saskatoon at the time doing mixed martial arts and I think he went to this camp where a number of guys came up from California. They're like, this is what we're doing down there. It's called CrossFit. And uh, he came back and he was like, Fitzy, you got to check this thing out. And so I checked it out. It was like late 2004, I think, um, and started like dabbling with it and then went full time with it uh, sometime in uh, 2005 um, and just started doing it myself as my own training program. And because I would, I've spent at this point in time 10 years and Give me an example. I was probably 
you know, working 60, 70 hours a week as a coach, like just as coaching, personal training program design or doing some other consulting efforts at that time. And I was doing that straight for maybe seven years at that time. Okay. Just to give you some context to it. So I had a robust amount of clients um, that I could also practice some of these new things I was learning about my own athletic pursuit in CrossFit. Um, and I, it just blended really well with my scientific background that I had to kind of think of how to, how to meld this and put it together uh, so it can work for me personally. Um, and then to your point, I was doing that for a number of years, really strictly. And then the games came out and it just made sense. It was like, yeah, of course, I'm going to get together with a live competition and, uh, and try to win that. And I was very lucky enough to do that. So before we get into to that games um, year or competition or weekend or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. one of the things I, I, I think OPEX does really well and they're valued for and your, yourself included is talking about programming design. Um, and you mentioned you, you've been in the industry for 10 years when you first found CrossFit, first started doing it. What were you doing for programming? Were you just following MainSight? Were you doing things yourself? Did you know, did you see some holes in MainSight or what you thought were holes at the time um, as something that you wanted to change to yourself that you're like, oh, they're not doing it right. I want to, I want to do it a different way or add on pieces. So tell me a little bit about your programming initially. Yeah. Uh, you mean um, uh, it, programming uh, at the time for everyone else with CrossFit as the methodology or just what I was doing? you know, initially and then throughout it? Good question. I think, I think both. So like, what did you do for yourself? And then how did you, I guess, did you just give the clients the exact same thing or did you do it differently? No, good question. So at, at, uh, so 2004, just to give context too, I was 30 years of age, right? So people can, so anyone who's listening can think about it. It's like, okay, he's not 18 and starting this thing and full of piss and vinegar. He's probably got some experience. So at that point in time, I had done lots of strongman, lots of, uh, powerlifting, did West Side quite strict for three years as a base support plus cross-country running, if I could look at those two polarities. Um, but of course, I was a fitness coach. And at the time, with the growth of all these tools of functional fitness, I was doing different courses every couple of weekends and learning all different kinds of shit. So um, I did all kinds of things for a number of years prior to 2004 and doing that. When I did 2004 um, onward, I strictly did CrossFit. So that's all I did, plus some running and just other, like, I would call them just supplementary things um, to, like, when I was working out with hockey players in the summertime, we'd do uh, strongman stuff together. Um, during the, you know, wintertime, I would do some bodybuilding workouts with some clients. So I still, like, kept, you know, um, doing all those other things. But CrossFit was, like, that little sport every day, uh, three-on-one-off that I, I started doing. In 2000. Seven after the games, uh, some changes happened in the programming of MainSight that I wasn't really on board with. Um, they just took a different tone. I don't know what happened at that point in time, but um, it just turned me off. It turned into more uh, beatdowns and less of that broad, base balanced fitness. You know, with a, you know, it was very hard to find a workout that came up that was like press five by five, right? Like that used to be one workout. Um, and it never showed up anymore. It was always like 30 minutes of like madness, you know? Um, and that happened like, geez, I don't know, 15 out of 21 workouts in a month. So it was just too much, you know? So, um, I, uh, I just cha- started to change up my own style and routine. And, um, and of course, because I had won, lots of people had interest on these different ideas that I had. 
So I was just sharing that online through a, through a blog and of course been using it with my clients for a number of years. And so I started to make my own rendition of what that would look like to complement people's fitness. I hope I answered your question on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that's it's really interesting. One of the questions I had for you um, and, and as your analysis of that programming was undergoing, you, and you mentioned it before, in those mid-2000s, it was like the fire hose came on with high intensity. We're like, oh, sprint intervals is what's going to get us fit. doesn't matter what we do with it. It's just putting it in two minutes on, one minute off, two minutes on, one minute off. Um, did you know at the time that that, that that type of intensity was dangerous in terms of hormone impact uh, and the way that it has been over the past 15-ish years um, and the, the education that is starting to kind of weed its way out for, to fitness professionals and just the general public today? Yeah. Um, well, that's a lengthy one, buddy. Um, <laughs> I, I knew about the dose response. So just think about this. The dose response of particular exercise has existed for 80 years. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so nothing, nothing new happened. It just looked different. So at 2004, did I know about the dose response of exercise? I sure as shit did. This was the key difference is that the input of modalities changed for the dose response. So now you have to, you have to have brain stretched this out to think about all the new consequences of these dose responses from these new modalities that are being put together under this blanket veil of academia, right? Because that we, we had this mechanistic view of like CP glycolytic aerobic, right? It's like, okay, that's pretty much the way it is. And then we, were, we inserted all these different modalities inside of that structure, right? Um, and that, that's really what caused to your last point there, a lot of the issues going forth on high intensity. But, but I should say, it's not just the modality, how it's delivered in the dose response, because remember, they still exist. It's not, this, the modality is not the issue, is what I'm saying, or the changes in the modality is not the issue. The biggest issue is that this was marketed to people who don't deserve to do it, right? No, so, I'll just take, you know, if I had 150 clients back in 2003, five of them could do really true anaerobic work. Really true anaerobic work, right? And now all of a sudden in 2007 is like 150 people, all you can do it. We could just like, we'll put bands on it and fucking change up the modality and just cheer you on if we, you know, if you're not making it, you know, and it was like, this was now a badge of honor. Right, it now became like a dopamine search and a cortisol push, and everyone just like fell in love with it. With this entire marketed veil over the top of it, right? That's like community. We are, we are doing all this for the good, you know. It's just it's fucking humorous, honestly. But hey, I fell prey to it as well. I had a couple of CrossFit gyms, and I was practicing myself, practicing with clients. But you know, we just did. So to your point of like the hormonal implications and whatever. Et cetera. It's not the modality or the concept that was the issue or the dose response is that people shouldn't have been doing it. They, they, they I think, couldn't express it. I, th I think, I think like other problems, like I, I related to nutrition kind of it's, it was, for example, it's not the keto diet that is the issue or the paleo diet or whatever diet you want to put it. It's the application of said diet, right? It just, yeah. it, it doesn't apply to a certain person 
who has certain circumstances. It's like a human's problem. It's exactly. It's, it's not, it's not. You know, it's like, fault, you know, and not and to the opposite yeah. side, and to the opposite side of that, uh, vegetarianism or keto, that's not the answer, but it could be if your diet and your lifestyle is shit. Yeah. So, yeah, because, you know, to the opposite, it's like, well, you know, um, and so this is, this is the point, like an exercise, right? Was high intensity a fix? Yeah, it was. It was a complete band-aid for a shit lifestyle and not enough time in a day. But, yeah, I, but that comes back to haunt you when you can't express it over a period of time. And over time, you're, you're constantly looking for that pain and that cortisol response. You now need yeah, it. I, I think that's interesting too, because like you, you talk about the ability to do it over time. And one of the things that you, you, you talk about on other podcasts, and I understand it because I, I, I think I've listened to you enough on your own, on your own podcast or just on podcasts and, and just YouTube videos from OPEX as well. Unpack that a little bit in terms of being able to ex express it, because yeah. what does that mean for the general person who's listening to this? Like if we're doing DT and my first round is in one minute and my last round is in seven minutes, what's wrong well, with that? Is that not well, just bad pacing? Yeah, but you, okay. Well, you just explained it to the general public. That's how I explain it. Cause it is complex, right? It is complex, yeah. but there's a couple of things you need to think about inside of there. And I mean, if you want to take it down that pathway and extend that out, we can. But it's got a lot to do with uh, your potential. And what a person can express is based upon experience and age and a number of other things like makeup and modality and et cetera, et cetera, right? So, and the way that, you know, if you don't understand it now, then, you can, then I, I just make people stretch this out in their brain and say something like this, you know, you know how... How does a six-year-old respond to it? And, that, and, then, and then it makes you start to think about growth and development and what they're capable of and what they've built, et cetera. And now there's like these gray areas, right? So how does a 16-year-old express it, right? When prefrontal cortex is not maximized, cardiovascular and central nervous system adaptations are not maximized, how do they express it? Now, how does a 28-year-old express it? Now, how does a 62-year-old with 40 years of training express it you see what i'm saying so if you if you think that out really hard as a coach you'll start to make sense of my conversation when i say can they actually express the intended thing that they want to express but you answered it eloquently most times the numbers always are the truth so like the iron never lies repeatability never lies so if you want something to be as high possible power as you can then it would make sense whatever task you're doing that power is maintained throughout. So one thing that people can do to see if you're actually truly expressing it is number one, can you recover from it, <laughs> right? To repeat it and grow again. And if you can't adapt to that expression, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. Or you need to do a regressed expression. And I have to stop there on it because of course it, it, could, it could be more broad, but repeatability is a way to do it. You just answered it. Yeah. I think that's an interesting thing. And, and it's, it's an repeatability as itself. You could do probably an entire episode on that because I think that like, well, it's like, sorry, sorry. It just made you think of it. So people are like, well, is he just talking energy systems? I'm like, no, it all depends upon your context. So, you know, if someone snatches, snatches a max, right. And it's all on Instagram and everyone's so excited. Right. And, and then they wait like seven minutes. Right and they try it again and it feels like a house, you're not a bad person now because you can't lift it, 
but that shows a lack of repeatability. That means there's something in the scaffolding that didn't allow you to express that same load again. You see what I'm saying? So it's not just inside of energy system training. It's about being able to express with the base support such that you can recover and express it again. The common thing, especially in micro gyms, everyone would know this, is like the muscle up, right? A client gets the muscle up and they don't get another one for three months. Why? Because they didn't develop the base support to express the muscle up, right? To express it, meaning that, oh, they did it, but that doesn't mean you can recover from it or adapt and do it again. So there's an equation there. It's not about just doing it. And that's what we need to recognize, right? It's not just about doing it because anyone could write a workout. Anyone could do something that's hard, but can you get up really quickly and then repeat it again? You can't. Well, you probably shouldn't have been doing it. So that's a really good question that I'd like to unpack and, and use as a tool as the, as the theoretical development of an athlete, right? So when it comes to that person, Mrs. James, who just got her muscle up, mm-hmm. well, you want to be happy for it, right? Like it's, a, it's, a, it's an achievement that, you know, is cool. It's a party trick. Um, but at the same time, it would be irresponsible as a coach to allow them to just continue swinging on the bar and hoping for the best if they can't actually do that, right? So where do you go as a coach? in terms of building them the tools that they're not they're, they might stay away from that bar or rings for months on end mm-hmm. so that they can do multiple muscle ups and not be swinging and failing and flailing around like complete clowns for months. Yeah. Well, you got to take a, you know, we have to have some context on that because mm-hmm. we want to have some ideas on, you know, the goal and the intention of it. Right. Cause if it's just for party tricks or to become popular, just, I would tell a coach, just find another medium for people to feel like they're worthy or they're relatable. You know, yeah. um, there's multiple different ways to do that. We, we laugh at it, but it's actually an argument that a lot of gym owners push as to why they should have whiteboards in a competitive setting in their gyms. Right. They're like, but James, everyone, everyone loves to have that, feel that athlete sense again. I was like, you think that's the only way you're going to get a medium of com- competition is in, is in, is an exercise. Anyways, I digress. Um, you have to take context to what you're talking about. Um, so I'm going to make an assumption and I'll just placate it. And you can say, well, no, that's not exactly what I was talking about. Is you, if you have um, the context that this person wants to compete, then yep. you honestly then just have to say, well, if, if that's the specific goal and these are the tasks you need to accomplish, and this is where you sit right now, the pathway between where that skill sits right now and where you need to compete, we simply adjust the time frame on how long it's going to take that if we progress you through what I would call a skill progression of that skill. So if someone's, so just back to your point, it's not really fraudulent on behalf of the coach, but if they're just allowing clients to kind of flap around, if that coach was taught principles of progression, then they would have this actual check mark, you know, thing to look at to determine exactly where that skill sits, you know? So it's, it's, then it's very easy. Um, and this is why the whole scaling idea um, is okay for health and fitness, but it's not okay for sport, you know, for context, because you actually have to continue to improve the skill under that skill in its like worst possible scenario in a competitive environment and then reverse engineer that way back. And that's lengthy. That would be like the skill done by itself and all that, and we'll use the muscle up in his example, it could be six months of straight arm scapular support activity, 
right? Plus a bunch of other things that just get you to the point where you can do a successful kipping ring muscle up, okay? And then repeat it like every 30 seconds over and over, right? That would be considered the initial stages. And I'm only giving you this as an example of like, how do you put this through skill progression? And we always use the muscle up because it's always one that, you know, you can put any other skill inside of it, but that's the context of it. And then to be short, that muscle up has to be moved through different progressive intervals, uh, different progressive pieces, I should say, not intervals, um, that are timeline and time stamped that give you an idea as the coach, like, oh, this is when I move up to the next level, right? So theoretically, you should say, if this is the muscle up, they're only doing one and they need to do you know, uh, whatever you define as being that skill in its worst scenario in competition, you simply just reverse engineer that back and they don't compete until they can perform that skill at that level. Yeah, and this is the I issue. And this is the issue, right? You know what, you know what's going to happen is, right, they, they'll take six years to get that skill to that point that they can compete at that level. And this is where it gets, you know, inclusion and, you know, th this whole thing comes in a community and like, why are you saying that? You know, and I always use the analogy. It's like, you know, uh, you know, marathoners are a classic example, right? Someone hasn't run for 40 minutes, but they're like, I'm going to do a marathon. You know, it's like, you haven't been on your feet for three and a half hours before, right? But because they complete it with patellar tendonitis and plantar fascia and bleeding nipples, it's like, I did it. But no, you actually didn't. Right, you didn't actually complete it. Do you see my point in that? That's the same 100%. muscle up progression. You got to earn that right, but because there's so much conversation on what is truly reality of completion, right, as opposed to participation, it it kind of blurs those lines in health versus sport. I think that's a really good way. The way that you put it, and like that line between health and sport is one that is blurry. It's got oh the drunk God. goggles on it. Like you can't even tell what. And, and why is it blurry? Cause it's sellable, right? Yep. Nike, you know, everyone, man, that was one of my highest ranking Instagram posts, which I didn't even propose it to be, but everyone loves the fact that they can call their clients athletes. Love it. Right. They're so bought into that. Do you know why internally the coach knows that? Cause they know in their backseat, they can sell that fantasy lifestyle. You can be an athlete too. No, you can't. You will. You are not an athlete. You're not looking to rip someone's uh, eyeballs out to win a million bucks, right? That's an athlete mentality. Not all athletes think like that, but athletes will crush you, right? They will rip you apart. So that's why is there so much money to be made in that? Absolutely. So when it comes to the functional fitness realm, if someone comes to you, and I've heard before and correct me if I'm wrong but I've heard before people come to you and they say you know I do want to I have aspirations of competing within the the functional fitness realm you can pretty much soberly look at them and say you're two or three years out yeah. or whatever it happens to be how one how do you make that distinction and two where do you as the guy that you know like I said before molds the clay where do you start I mean it's case dependent right everyone yeah, sure. but like you had you started off with you know, powerlifting in cross country, that was a good base for you. Is that the ideal one? Or where do you, where do you, I guess, make that distinction? Yeah, well, you asked me two different things there, the philosophy and the kind of training to get people to that goal. But first, you know, how do we determine that? It's pretty simple. You got to create context to what the event is. Mm -hmm. And then you simply just test exactly where they are in those specific skills of that event. 
So if someone's like, oh, I want to do the open, well, then the initial test is going to be like 19-1. You see my point? So, or sorry, 18-1 or 17-4 or whatever you want to use. is like, well, let's see if you can complete this. Yep. And then that, and you just reverse engineer back. And if you're like, oh, I completed it. It's like, yeah, okay, you completed it, except you came 37,000th in your country. You know, so, and, and your hands are ripped for seven days. You know, I'm just, I'm just making some humor to it, but you want to exactly, because so then they can say, oh, I want to compete at this. Then you have to sit, have context of what that is. So if someone's like, I want to, I want to do this weekend competition that has five events. Then you have to actually find out right away. How far do they sit away from expressing that actual thing? Right? Because it actually is a shitty idea on a coach's behalf if you put someone into that tube knowing full well it's going to take them two years yet they want to compete in four months right but a coach immediately a coach is like yeah but they may not stay with me well that's just that's just the fucking that's the way it is so i don't pull any punches from that number one i should i or sorry number two i should also say i have had lots of experience so i don't just pull that shit out of my ass or i don't say two to three years simply because i want to slow them down I just know the actual fact of pushing people through too quickly. I've hurt just as many people as I've helped, right? I had to be those first initial coaches to experience with all those things, right? And to your second point, what should those people do? You described it in a manner that's called polar style of training. Yes, most people would do extremely well with a base support of absolute strength training and getting really good at that and cyclical training only, and nothing in the middle, right? Nothing in the middle. And all the shit that you do in the middle can come as skill practice once you develop that massive base support of, to just use two things, a deadlift 3RM and a 5K run. You become really, really good at both of those, and I can guarantee you that's an excellent base support for all that shit in the middle. Who is our, who is our, uh, uh, or sorry, who was the CrossFit champion this year? Tia Clare. Go look at her background. What did she do? She ran like a banshee in cross-country running and then was introduced to weightlifting. I mean, you don't have to look too far, <laughs> right? What did I do prior to CrossFit? Bodybuilding and powerlifting and running. You know, you don't have to look too far. Yeah, and even even a guy like Matt Fraser, like he didn't—I don't know—he had much of an aerobic base before, but he he was obviously into weightlifting, right? So that took one weightlifting, of the, one of the and things. then he learned how to do aerobic protocols. Yep, that so some, he's, that's something so he's worked on up and up, tirelessly. Right? Um, yeah, I think that's a really I, the, the hard part about that is is the impatience within the fitness industry. I think that's the hardest part about all of this. Yeah. That I, I've said it before on, on other episodes and, and just in content as well. I think weight loss, is, weight loss and fitness in general is one of the only things you can't go on Amazon Prime and order your house in the next 24 hours, right? <laughs> so that's the, that's the hard thing that people can't get over. So I totally get that when you say, when you tell a client two to three years, it's like, well, shit, like someone on the internet told me I can do it next, <laughs> next month. So Exactly. And, um, and it's not someone. It's like... 28 times in their Facebook yeah. feed, right? It's like, this coach just told me that it's going to take me like nine months to do that. And then 28 times before they leave your office is like, 
you could do this in two weeks, just this diet pill and this. <laughs> For sure. One of the things that I think that you talk about in another podcast as well, and I'd like you to kind of unpack is here is the idea uh, or the notion of competing in the, the frequency of that competing. Uh, because I think that's something that with the explosion of CrossFit or whatever you want to call it, um, that has changed dramatically over the last decade. And even looking at the CrossFit Games season this year and last year and the new changes, we have 28 sanctionals next year, mm-hmm. along with the Open and the Games. Mm-hmm. There really isn't an off-season anymore. Like Matt Fraser used to take August off and just sit in Ontario in his, on a cabin and, and do nothing. But mm-hmm. I don't know if he necessarily can do that the way that it was once was before. And you're still working with a number of professional athletes, I believe. And that, that's, you know, that's an obstacle that you have to encounter. But at the micro level, there's people doing weekend comps every fucking weekend. Like everybody's doing these weekend competitions. And, you know, maybe you're okay to do one or two a year. But like I said, eventually just becomes too much. So how do we know when we're competing too much? And should we be competing less than we are, I guess? Yeah, well, uh, to, to be a pessimist, anything I say is not going to change anyone's <laughs> perspective. I'm just, just let's just be honest, right? I have my own ideas, yeah. but no one's. It's not going to change anyone's thoughts, right? If anything, it'll just make more people pissed off to train more. Um, <laughs> secondly, I've answered this one numerous times already, but I'll clarify it, or you know, got better with my language each time. I think it'll take about three years or so before people realize that a bunch of folks are getting burnt out again. It's like the second wave of being burnt out, you know? Um, (laughs) So I think it'll take a couple of years before, you know, uh, someone's like, "Uh, just a second now. I find that I can't do that over and over, et cetera. Um, Third, I think it's it's individual, right? Because um, we have to think about things because you mentioned something about, um, you know, nutrition profiles. If you know about, you know, adaptation and people's levels of resilience and you know uh, the nervous system and how people respond to things everyone responds to different stressors differently at different rates and adapt at different speeds so you got to remember that there are going to be the two percent I generally like to say based upon my experience that can like go into the ringer and can do a whole bunch of competitions and come out the other side and they have you know uh, tendon structure and, you know, ligament ability and proprioceptive ability and, you know, gut resilience and all these things that just allow them to get in and uh, through chaos and perturbations, they actually learn and get better, right? But we use these 2% as the model, right? Or like, well, those people are doing all this training and getting better and competing and w- there's just not enough shared information and people are embarrassed to say that they just get burnt out after a season of three months of competing every second weekend, right? And it's also, it's almost like, you know, geez, you know, I just, I'm glad you just mentioned it because uh, I was quite tired, you know, and no one wants to talk about it on Instagram or online, but I'm the one who hears all of it, right? Because I have to sit on a couch with, with athletes here who are burnt and try to figure out a plan to like get them out of the system or get them fixed or coaches of athletes who are like, coaches a lot of my clients are just like they're just beat up so how do I like fix this right so you gotta we gotta figure that out um but I just my point is you gotta remember that everyone responds differently to that so based upon principle you want to say and this is the interesting thing I, I consider the sport of fitness like that 
the, one of the highest metabolic and mechanically fatiguing situations. The caveat is that they're willfully done. So it's not like football or mixed martial arts where you can't control the tasks, right? You don't know if you're going to get hit like that from the side, so you prepare as much as possible. You willfully know you're getting into it, but you still are doing mechanical and metabolic stressors to a really high level, right? So you have to recognize that there has to be a massive base of sport if massive base of sport if you expect to do that frequently. And I don't know anything else to say, but just use fucking common sense, right? Is that if you do 150 smacks to your head through kipping handstand push-ups and you do it every four days for a year, you probably should expect some cervical issues or some trap impingement or some issues down the road, right? And if you're like, well, I never, never knew about that. I'm not a kinesiologist, I'm not a physiologist. Like, well, uh, yeah, I don't even know what to tell you. Like, that's just, that's just the way it is. Um, so it, that, that's one thing to recognize that everyone's going to respond to that frequency of competition differently. And training age has a big part to play with that. If you have a young training age, you probably can get put into the fire and get spit out on the other end, i.e. the 2% and be okay. Look at Noah Olson. Look at his history would be like that, right? He competed, I guess, every second weekend or every weekend possibly. When I saw him back, he came to my lab in 2011 and he was at a camp of mine in 2012. And he was a little young whippersnapper, resilient as hell and competing all the time. And look where it gets him. You know, so it, it, it uh, can't be used as, a, as an example and just to be a pessimist again. No matter what I say on it, it's not going to change people's opinions on it because people are still going to, you know, want to have people to show up, compete on weekends because it makes money for, you know, the sponsors of the people that, that want to do it. Um, and in the Absolutely. end, a lot of those people can't do it you know, 10 times a year, but they think they can. So uh, last point, of course, it's just going to take time. In two or three years, maybe we should have a podcast again and we'll talk about, you know, uh, the current, you know, article that just came out saying like, holy shit, people are burnt out, you know, in competing in the sport. Yeah. And I think that like it has, it has taken time. It does come in waves and even the way that nutrition has changed within the sport of CrossFit has, has changed over the last decade or so when it first came out we were super paleo which was obviously meaning low carb which was not the way you want to train and fuel for CrossFit um yeah. the, other, the other aspect of it too and I think this is interesting to, to kind of get your opinion on and and it kind of blends us into the OPEX realm of things is you guys do a little bit more individualized programming so mm -hmm. not only does that have the benefit of catering to an athlete's needs that are different than another athlete's but it also puts you in an environment where you're not in the setting where you're competing against the other person across the room every single day. Mm -hmm. um, even if I'm doing my own training, I find that while it can be sometimes less motivating to do a workout by yourself, mm -hmm. right, you don't have a whiteboard time, you don't have a specific time, you're going by specific feel. How did that feel? Can I push harder? Should I push harder? All those things. Mm -hmm. So I guess to start off with, how is that something you consider when you founded OPEX and why did, what hole in the market did you see to, to start what you're doing today? Yeah, well, um, so OPEX uh, does a number of different things. I think what you're talking about is the big dogs, which is online coaching for people who want to compete in the sport. Okay. And so for that, meaning that we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of clients all over the world and we work online with them 
to give them a program. To your point, your question, I can come back and circle back to like OPEX to your last quest part of your question if you want, but thebigdogs.com, we have private coaches who do individualized design. To fix the problem that you were speaking of, which is a real one, right, is the itch that clients have. Remember that in an individual consultation and when you get to know someone, you get to know what, how and what motivates them. And so it, we do use uh, you know, semi-private scenarios where some of their friends will work out with them in their local area. Um, we have collection of data that we can give to that client so that one person in Romania can know what our top person in the US is doing for that specific workout. Um, there's numerous ways to try to figure out that leaderboard and that competition format, right? Because in the end, remember that we just have a philosophy that that's why we call it Sunday. That's our like philosophical term that we put on all of our shirts. Because in the end, it comes down to self-responsibility on the athlete. Like in the end, on Sunday, no one is out there moving you forward. You know what I'm saying? It is up to you. So, you know, you're not, you know, Jacob Hepner is not going to be like, Come on, man, let's do this together while you're out on the floor. He's going to want to eat your lunch, right? Although it may seem like it's all friendly because after everyone's like cheering people on and stuff, that's bullshit. During the competition, they don't care about you. So you have to have pieces of that in your training, this whole concept of like you got to get it intrinsically inside for the right reasons and the right intention first. This doesn't mean that we don't have athlete camps or give an opportunity for for athletes to see where they sit amongst others but we flush that out in an initial consultation but if we sense that to your point that someone's like dying to have that like exposure there's often times where they may not work with us which is okay it's not a bad thing they just want to be in a group setting and and have like a um a crossfit mayhem you know group of working with other people in the same program and raising each other's standards and and that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, but to talk about, I guess, I guess to, to break into the OPEX part of mm -hmm. things, like what, why did like from a education perspective mm -hmm. and, and, and that side of things, yep. why did you, uh, why did you start OPEX? Why not just continue doing coaching like the big dogs and all that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Well, um, to be really uh, simple on it, I was just getting lots of questions. So, you know, at late, 2008, 2009, uh, 2010, um, I had a number of things going on. Um, but the opportunity that coaches were, because uh, I was doing lots of consulting and presenting on different aspects of fitness coaching and professional, et cetera. And because of my experience in CrossFit, and now I was a number of years into working online with people for the sport, um, you know, just people kept asking questions like, how do I do that? What you're doing, right? Which is online coaching and of course have professionalism in fitness, right? So at this point in time, I had 15 years within coaching day to day and then having a team of coaches, numerous different facilities, personal training facility, personal training facility was in a rehab center, a satellite location, commercial, sorry, satellite corporation location, two CrossFits, um, and then a program design spot that was called OPT. Um, and then this online program, and then all these questions came about. I was like, you know, I should develop what I believe are the pillars of becoming a really good professional fitness coach. And so I developed OPEX CCP, which is our coaching certificate program. And it has aspects of business assessment, consulting, program design, and nourishment inside of it. 
that at the end of it, um, I believe coaches can take that information as principles and go out there and do a whole bunch of things in fitness. So at that point in time, in the late, in late 2008, 2009, I put that together um, and then just started the process of um, having, you know, having the organization, organization of that education. And what brings us to today on that is we have close to 3,000 coaches that have gone through that. And we now have OPEX gyms, which is our flagship idea at the end of CCP education that allows that coach to go out there and have an actual place and where we have the same language and we believe in something, right? Which is quality individual design in our gyms. Um, and we have 60 plus gyms around the world now and we're still growing on that. Um, we still have the big dogs, which is online coaching for people who are competitive in sport. Uh, we have mixed model, which is education for uh, the specific sport of fitness. Um, yeah. So one of the things I, I found interesting listening to or watching a video uh, within OPEX on YouTube was you said, you said, or someone within OPEX said, we don't define fitness the same way that most people think of it. You don't think of fitness as the end game, it's the medium to the end game. Can you kind mm -hmm. of unpack that and why you think that? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, for people in sport, fitness is the end game. We should say that's a caveat, right? So, but uh, for most people that are doing exercise, they're not doing it for the same reasons that we're doing it to win a CrossFit event. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of people that do fitness or movement intention, um, well, first of all, a lot of them don't know why they do it. That's our goal is to kind of raise that awareness for them. But that's why we say fitness is the medium because we teach those individuals that what they do in movement and behaviors and nutrition allows them to do whatever they want to do as good or as best as possible. So you can see that your end result is not the scores on fitness. Fitness is a journey that allows you to get all those other things that you want to do. Right? So, and, and then, you know, and then you could define fitness a specific different way based upon that. But fit, that's why we say fitness is a journey. Right. It's it's not it's not about reproduction and survival anymore. Right. It is in that connotation for sport because the higher fitness and capacity you have, you're going to beat other people. Right. But the higher in fitness and capacity you have in general health, you actually will be less healthy. <laughs> so it can't be the outcomes that we're looking for for fitness. It has to be part of that process that dictates where we want to go with it. So that's why we say that language. You may have heard us say it's the, it's the medium that we use for it. So we want to get people on board with this idea that you need to treat it with dignity um, and you need to take care of fitness um, because it's going to give back to you in numerous different ways that are attached to your highest priorities. You know, some people want to be great fathers, right? Some people want to be um, the best politician, right? Some people want to be um, an excellent high school basketball coach. Some people want to be an artist, you know, some individuals have unbelievably different priorities you never would have thought of, right? Some people want to be a caretaker, a nurturer, a teacher. Um, you know, their, their vocation or their lives will mold in a certain way. What does fitness mean to them? It's just a conduit, right? It's just a, it's just a method of something they're going to do to challenge themselves mentally and physically to do the artistry or whatever they want to do better. Yeah, I think that's something that's, that's interesting. Why do you think it's so philosophically hard for an individual to unpack what that why is? Why? It's because why we want to go into the gym. It's because this entire generation currently 
and the entire generation of 30 to 35 year olds and the entire generation of four. Fitness has always been a duct tape rehab program, right? Fitness has now, is now in place of the fix for a shit lifestyle. It's a fix for stress. It's a fix for disease. It's a, it's a, you know, that, that's how fitness has been. So why is it so challenging philosophically? We don't have the system in place, which is why I love the concept of OPEX gyms, whether it's my t-shirt or not. Inside the OPEX gyms, what's our first, you know, um, connection with a client? It's a 90-minute sit-down. Like, we're going to sit here and just chat, right? We're going to talk. We're not going to work out and sweat and, like, you know, show you what you can't do with your diaphragm. It's going to be like, nope. We're going to talk like I need to clean up all of this stuff that you have. So our, some of our initial questions is what does fitness mean to you? Right? What's your definition? So imagine if I asked that to a 25 year old who had orthorexia for 10 years, right? What does fitness mean to them? Imagine all the unpacking that needs to happen based upon that. I can't just get into working out. Now I'm just dancing. So, that's why I think it's philosophically hard. And there's also no system in place currently today so that coaches can sit down and unpack those things to change the intention and the belief in what exercise should be. And which is why I'm vilified in multiple different circles. No one is out there criticizing bad ideas like I am on movement intention because it gets in the way of commercial interest of selling different shit right? It's called the soft program. That's what, that's what ours is called, the soft program. Why? Because we believe in longevity. We want people to be do, doing it forever and we don't want them being maniacs around fitness. We want them to see it as a, as a medium for other things. So that, and in my lifetime, I don't think in my lifetime, like I'm 45, you know, maybe I'll be kicking around. I got a, a bum knee right now. So maybe if there's knee replacements that are really easy, accessible in a couple of years, I'll be able to walk around for another 40 years. But um, I don't think in my lifetime, I'm going to see a change to that a change in perspective of it. It's just way too strong in the direction. I, I think that's, uh, that's one of the things that kind of leads me into the, the couple last final questions I have. And one of them being on legacy. And I think it's interesting that in this entire, you know, nearly an hour, the only time that you've brought up the 2007 games victory was when I brought it up. It's not something that I would guess from this, this side of the camera or this side of the computer that, you believe is your legacy that's not really part of it but i could be totally wrong so what is the what is the legacy that you want to establish for yourself that like if if you had people you know gathering at your funeral someday what would you want them to be saying about you when you're gone i really don't care because i'm not even going to be able to feel or see or or have anything to do with what's left behind yeah. so it doesn't matter to me um and philosophically, I think, uh, not that it's a right or wrong thing. I think legacy, um, uh, is, is just, is just a, yeah, I'll just say it like it is. I think it's egotistical to have, to try to think okay. about having a legacy component. Um, and so I don't, uh, I really don't care, honestly. Um, the only thing that I can really hang on to is, um, or, you know, really think about doing is, um, my day to day. And, you know, minute by minute, what I can do to basically create some form of challenges to my brain um, and challenges to my emotions and challenges to my being and then, you know, just keep moving it forward.
So, um, yeah, no, that sounds kind of nihilistic, but I really don't care what, what's on the grave or what people say about me because I can't even like have conversation with whatever their thoughts are based upon that, you know? So I think, uh, I think it's good because it's, it's so brain that you don't, that you wouldn't base your truth and what you tell people on a day-to-day -day basis that way. Then anyways, because then you're like, like you mentioned, like it's an egotistical view like that would change your perception of reality and what you base that reality to other people on a day-to-day -day basis and how you operate your day-to-day -day life. So I think that's actually an answer in and of itself. Um, one of the other questions that I had for you is I don't want to be a creep, but at the same time, there's a massive bookshelf right behind you. <laughs> um, filled with books, and I guess for those of you who aren't able to see it, it's probably it's just a wallpaper. It's actually not even books. <laughs> it looks like that. So, <laughs> it's a 3D if, image. There's, if there's like three books or a handful of books or just one book um, that people should read, whether that's about fitness, whether that's about philosophy, life, whatever, what do you think people should read um, to kind of better understand themselves and better understand where they where fitness, I guess, impacts their life, if at all. Yeah, um, I was trying to think as you were asking, it was like, that's an unfair question for someone who is who um, is such a lover of all that different information. And it'd be unfair that I'm probably going to forget one that could like be really impactful for people. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, I would just say that anything that based upon your reasoning, why you wanted the recommendation of the book to learn about themselves, um, I would say some readings on evolutionary biology um, and not because of belief or something that could be, you know, of challenging to you, but um, I would say, you know, do some readings on uh, um, some of those areas. Yeah. I found that was interesting when doing research about you that your minor, I believe was in biology, if I'm correct. Right. And yeah. you started out working in the lab. So I thought that was, that was pretty interesting for a guy that spent, you know, 25 years plus in the fitness industry. Uh, it's kind of a unique path, if you will. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think it's a base support really for if within CCP, we teach a lot about basic lifestyle guidelines and honoring nature and honoring, you know, materialism. Um, doesn't mean that we're all truly materialists, but um, the brain, brain matter, cells, how we function, um, all of these concepts, I think, have a big part to play as a base support in free will and choice and like where you end up and how resilient you are and what you do. So I think the base support of biology and stuff that we've learned over the past hundred years is really, really important. That's bias in my position, but um, I think we're at a beautiful time in this thing, um, 2019 where we have this unbelievable technical and scientific information now that is allowing us to find better answers to why we're doing what we're doing and why we're here. So if people want to find out fundamentally about themselves, back to your question, I think you pretty much want to, want to, you know, ask, you know, you and I, what makes you and I unique and different than a tiger? You know, little, little things like that, like, you know, two facts that just came across my brain over the past couple of days that just make people like, you know, just, you know, check things in 1900, just cause a book I just read more recently, 1900, only 5% of American women lived over 50 years of age. One fact. Number two, um, they just found tools next to a fossil remain in Europe 
around Greece, actually, um, that showed Homo sapiens was on that Eurasia continent 350,000 years ago. So these facts, right, these facts like that allow you a base support to help us understand, you know, who we are and what we do and what makes us up because it makes you understand the tremendous mystery around what the hell this entire thing is and why we do anything. And if you start thinking like that, back to your point of recommending a book, you'll start recognizing that the physical manifestation is quite important and great thoughts and clear decisions is quite important, right? Then you'll also start seeing that you stressing out over not making the final event on Saturday is minuscule in this entire thing. That's why yeah. you should want to learn about a book or learn about yourself. You need, I, I think you should go down the route of whether you don't or believe it or not, look into evolution and biology. Yeah. And, and understanding your place in society and why that, why that matters and what you're here to contribute. If yeah, anything. What is, what's all this, what's all happening here? <laughs> what's going on <laughs> well, with this I'm whole thing? <laughs> I'm happy this t this took a really philosophical uh, change at the end of this at the end of this. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Um, one thing I'd like to ask you, just you know, is where, where where can we find you? I know you said you you have Instagram. You're on Instagram. I know you're mm -hmm. like you're that active. You're not, you're not it, like other fitness professionals who are say just posting content for uh, for likes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you definitely have a unique perspective on things. Um, so where can we find you on social media? But also how do we find you on OPEX or, or get in contact with you about signing up for some CCP if we so choose? Yeah, if you go on opexfit.com, um, you'll get lots of information to kind of direct you as to where you may sit within the fitness world. And um, we have a, a really powerful team here um, and, a, and a, um, just a great system that allows you to get lots of touches on what we do and what we teach. Um, and also just give you a perspective uh, and some different ideas on fitness. And in the end, if you end up in front of me or in part of a course or whatnot, then I hope we can be of help to you. Um, my handle on Twitter and Instagram is jfitzopex, J-F-I-T-Z-O-P-E-X. Um, on Twitter, I only just post my recent um, podcasts of what I listen to. Um, I'm a I would, I'd say it's pretty voracious. I'm a voracious two times speed listener to multiple different podcasts. Um, and I just post everything that I listen to on there and it's, it's all kinds of different views. Um, some may be hard for people to, uh, to understand or comprehend, but if you listen closely, you kind of get some ideas. And then on Instagram, yeah, I post my uh, daily workout regime, uh, some things that are upcoming, uh, what's going on with uh, my family life and things that I'm up to. Um, yeah. And just to your point, I think I have uh, 16,500 followers. So, um, but I don't have a check mark. So it really is me though. When you look at the things inside there um, and I don't even know, I don't even know where all those people have come from. I would assume it's like a CrossFit background or fitness in general background, or just simply because Instagram exists. Um, but I'm getting to the point now, which is interesting, where you know I'm getting lots of requests from just people from the interweb saying that they can take my following to like hundred thousand, you know, within a couple of weeks, which is probably just like made-up robot versions of humans that are on the other end. But uh, yeah, just as an interesting side note to the social media world, it's fascinating. 
it is and it, it's it's interesting that people such as that actually exist as a career or as a a way that like they live their lives on this coach people. yeah like it's 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 very interesting like that so Thanks so much for chatting about all of this. Uh, I, I hope to have you on before that two to three year time frame again yeah. to discuss on where we're going to go in the future. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, James. Yeah, thanks for having me.